The Out of Time Podcast is brought to you by brothers whose relationship was forged together by watches. Each episode will be a conversation with people we find fascinating from all walks of life. Welcome to the episode. The car industries have figured it out. We'll just put it that way. The, the automotive industry has figured out how to distribute parts. Uh-huh. And part of that is that they are forced to. There is legislation. There is right to repair legislation. That and there's, there's none for the watch industry? No. No. There, there is nothing. No. <laughs> so it's Wild West. It is a barren plain. So, so who owns the watch then? Well, I guess it depends on the... I guess it, de- it depends on the policy of the company who made your watch. So as a consumer, you have to ask about this before purchasing the... Yes. What the repair policy What the repair policy and parts availability? Yeah. It's a... But, it, but it's the same about anything else. Right. Uh, how, how so? Well, you know... Well, hold, before you, before you go into the explanation, Let's do some introductions. We kind of yeah. jumped right into so it. So we know who's and, talking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't... Were we taping? Yes, so, we are. Oh, I thought this is all the prelude. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is all the... I thought we were just getting up to speed here. <laughs> That's yeah. where we kick in the music right there. Yeah, we are. But uh, there's also <laughs> some value in that and getting used to just... Yeah, just warming up. We usually and, do that. You know, so forgetting about yeah. the, the equipment and, the equipment. and so forth. Um, so... Well, we are back here in downtown LA. Yeah. Second, no, I want to say our second home. We do have several homes here in DTL. This is home. I think it's where we roam, so it's yeah, all yeah. our home. Sitting here next to Brother Joshua, Horological Chronicles. There we go. Some Eskimo. Some guy across from us wearing purple. I, get, I think I think they're looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we should. We, we said we're at our second home. Yeah. Second and a half home. We do we have say, another home. Yeah. yeah. We should say thank you to uh, to Frank and to Mike. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We're always yeah. uh, welcoming here. Or Mike and Frank, depending on if you want it alphabetical or not. And <laughs> <laughs> Don Francisco Casa Cubana. Yes. Uh, but I'm super excited, guys. Like, our next guest is. Is a preeminent master of horology. Uh, of That's a good way of putting it. Both. That's... <laughs> and somebody I feel very lucky to count as a friend. Absolutely. Friend and respected colleague, I guess, mm-hmm. or something like that. That's the best title I could ever hope for. There you go. There you and, go. A, and a coffee connoisseur. Absolutely. <laughs> coffee connoisseur. So he is the three R's. He is the three R's. But I, I always call him Richard Rogers. <laughs> Well, and the planet part is because my wife says I'm from my own planet. So. Oh, oh, my God. That's <laughs> funny. That's funny. The same thing has been said about We've, <laughs> we've, we've talked about that many times. About your own planet. We all might inhabit the same planet. <laughs> oh, that is, that is too good. So, that is too good. Richard, I want to talk about your, your early beginning. Uh, your dad, I understand, is also a watchmaker. Can you, can you walk us through that journey? Well, my, I don't think your podcast is long enough, but uh, my dad was a Bradley Horological School graduate. Okay. Uh, he was a very good watchmaker. He had, when I was born, he was actually the associate head of wage and salary administration for Hughes Aircraft in Culver City. Oh, and, wow. But, but he, had been in the, me. he had been in the jewelry <laughs> business and in the, uh, uh, 
as a watchmaker right. before he ended up in the wage and salary field. And he had grown tired of the corporate structure and, and all the traveling and being away from home. And, mm -hmm. and he really just wanted to be back in his own business, right? Is what he or, or to have his own business. And you know, he worked for other people. You know, you see what other people are doing, and you go, oh, you know, I could do this better. And and so he ended up in uh, his own small independent retail jewelry store. And so when I came along, fortunately, he was in the retail jewelry business, and. I wasn't really made to work in the store. A lot of jewelry industry people, they would say, oh, you know, we had to work in the store whether we wanted to or not. My right. sister and I, uh, neither one of us were coerced or forced into the jewelry industry, right. <laughs> but we still ended up in it. Uh, and I uh, was very fortunate about that, I think, because my dad left it alone and said, you know, and didn't, you know, push us, mm -hmm. we, we could always see that he enjoyed and loved his business. So right. we ended up uh, you know, becoming interested. And it's one of those fields where there's so much to interest you that uh, for me it was the watchmaking that was really fascinating to me. Right. And so actually before I went away to college, I decided I would spend a little time in my dad's store uh -huh. and you know I had a you know a vague knowledge of what he did but I thought it would be fun and, and I, I felt I, I owed him that in some respects mm -hmm. to at least understand better. I knew he loved his business. Right. And once I went to work and got started working with watches and uh, the jewelry industry is a, an amazing one. Even even today, with the number of changes that we've seen over time, it's still really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate to serve a six-year apprenticeship with my dad. Six years. And then my sister and I, she was working for a jewelry store in San Luis Obispo. We decided to buy her store, so I moved away, uh, and we bought the jewelry store in San Luis Obispo right. from uh, the gentleman who was the founder of the business my sister worked for. Mm -hmm. And we were in business for five years while during that five years my dad, I, I was, I'll back up, I was fortunate enough to get uh, one of the most step scholarships to go to New Chatel. Wow. And uh, my dad closed his store, came up to uh, San Luis Obispo and help my sister and I had that opportunity to get, you know, it was kind of a, I, I, I had a, a good education from my dad, but my dad realized that it was important to have, that there are certain things in watchmaking, you need somebody to teach you those things. Right. You need to be in an educational environment right. to acquire, you know, certain skills to be able to master them and, and uh, the experience of most step was able to give me right. that opportunity. So I went back to work with my sister for a few more years and 
we were better friends than we were business partners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I moved to Stockton. Okay. Worked for a, uh, a very wonderful old American Gem Society store in Stockton. Uh, I got to work with a fabulous old watchmaker who maybe he hadn't graduated from a, you know, a fancy school or anything like that. Right. But he was, I, I learned a huge amount from Noel Garrett. He was extraordinary. I, I had not really been exposed to working on Accutrons. I learned that from Noel. I learned uh, a lot about working on Rolex during that period of time because we were uh, an official Rolex jeweler at that store. So I became very familiar with everything Rolex. And then it pays to look at the one ads in the San Francisco Chronicle occasionally. Okay. And there was an ad for a watchmaker at the Cartier Boutique in uh, San Francisco. Okay. So uh, they, it was the first boutique watchmaker program and uh, it was a lot of fun to develop that uh, uh, program there. And I uh, had a lot of fun for five, or almost, it was a little over four years. And then I went out on my own, kind of having that same urge or feeling that I wanted to be on my own. And it was really, uh, uh, I had a great time for, all told, it was about 11 years, first in the Bay Area, right. where I'd moved, and then back to Stockton. And then one day I was getting ready to open up my store. I was only open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The other days of the week I was closed to work. Gotcha. It's a and beautiful schedule. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that's how you did there, it. There up. were still a lot of late nights there too. Right. As well. <laughs> but uh, uh, Wednesday was my first day of the week. Right. And the phone rang just before I was going to open the door, and the gentleman said, "Hi, I'm so and so. Uh, I'm a uh, 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 like a headhunter type person." He said, "I'm looking for a uh, watchmaker for a uh, uh, carriage trade jeweler." Okay. And I said, uh, "You know what? I I'm." I'm really busy. I'm uh -huh. just getting ready to open my store. Uh, uh, I don't have time to talk to you. Right, right. And I was about, you know, a quarter of an inch away from putting the phone back on uh -huh. the uh, cradle, and I went. I picked the phone back up. I said, "Oh, are you still there? Where's the store?" And he said, San Diego. And I said, call me back. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, amazingly enough, in the span of, I think it was less than three months, I found a buyer for my store. Wow. And was able to uh, uh, arrange everything and get moved down to San Diego and went to work for a store 
in San Diego as their as their director of horology. And uh, um, I I want to ask before we keep progressing. Sure. What was the turning point for you as far as being independent to working for someone in San Diego? What was the desire? What, what was the know, factor? Well, because I, I grew up, I think I mentioned my dad's store was in Hemet when I worked for my dad. And in Hemet? You, in Hemet. Wow. And if you grew up... <laughs> There's a watchmaker in Hemet. Yeah. yeah. I don't you know, think there, there is was today. Several, <laughs> there were several good in watchmakers So Hemet was the Hemet. hub of horology. That was the... <laughs> yeah. you, wow. you, you would be surprised, actually. Wow. And uh, I, I'm shocked. If, if you grew up in Hemet, uh -huh. where do you think that you want to you know, go? San Diego. We used to go to San Diego all the time. Yeah, for the beach, yeah. You know, yeah. Okay. So, so I thought... <laughs> You mean somebody would pay me to move down to San Diego? That sounds really good. When you asked that, I was going to ask you if you'd ever been to San Diego. <laughs> I, was like, I didn't understand your question, and I thought, well, maybe he hasn't been there. And that's a fair question. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Why would anyone desire to move to San Diego? Right. Well, I mean, you own your own business, right? I mean, there's... Well, pros and cons, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just not a matter of like, oh, San Diego is a nice city. Of course, that's very true. But, and, and while, you know, Stockton gets a really terrible reputation. Good dim sum. And, uh, Good dim sum. Uh, it, it was really, a, it, it was a great place to do business, right. honestly. And mm -hmm. I was the only decent watchmaker mm -hmm. in a very wide area. And, uh, and your reputation precedes you, obviously, by people calling you and requesting. Well, it, it was, you know, I was, I was very fortunate in that respect. And, uh, you know, and, and just a side note, while I was at Wellstep, my sister and I had, uh, uh, we were uh, dealers for uh, JLC. Okay. And uh, uh, so when I graduated from Wellstep, JLC invited me to... Um, uh, spend a week at the factory and you know work with their after-sales service we got I got to work with one of my other well step students uh, went as well and we uh, got to sit with the man who at the time was in charge of doing the Atmos plots and after-sales service at the factory oh. and this this man he had the most wonderful life Every day he did two Atmos clocks. And if he got the two Atmos clocks done at 2.30 in the afternoon, right. he went home. That was that's it. it. That, was, that was his. That's the game to have. Yeah. That's, that's and, it. Uh, and, and to get to have the opportunity to sit next to him and see how he did everything. We had, we had had a course from JLC while right. I was at Wellstep. Uh, and you know, I felt like I had a really good background, but right. then sitting next to this guy was like in a completely different stratosphere in terms of knowledge and understanding of how the Atmos clock works. And so while I was in Stockton, right. people, I, I had people who would call me and say, oh, do you do Atmos clocks? Uh -huh. And it seems so random. I finally said to somebody, how, how did you know to call me about doing an Atmos right. clock? And they said, right. oh, because we had contacted the factory in Switzerland and they gave us your name. Wow. <laughs> wow. Dude. It was so 
so funny. That's incredible. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to do the Atlas clocks. So, but and, and, and I, I just didn't. I, I didn't learn only watchmaking. I learned to do jewelry repair, uh, stone setting, and with dad. Yeah. Okay. So you know, but the, my dad could get as much satisfaction out of creating a beautiful piece of jewelry. We did a lot of custom lost wax investment casting which was very popular at the time in the 70s and everything. Uh, the first trade my dad had learned was uh, he worked for his uncle who had a dental laboratory, which is <laughs> like, you know, it's jewelry arts, basically, yeah, right, is what right. it amounts to. Yeah, yeah. And so he was an excellent caster and solder, and uh, uh, he had gone to not only the watchmaking school at Bradley, but also to the jewelry manufacturing school and the hand engraving school. So he was very well-rounded, but, uh, uh, for me, creating a, a you know, nice ring or a beautiful pendant or something like that, it did not hold the fascination that working on a watch did. Yeah, the so, watch has a, the moving parts, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, the it's, heartbeat, right? It's like, I mean, you're a reanimator mm -hmm, if yeah. you're a watchmaker. Uh, the, no, I get it. It's it always some fun to take yeah, something yeah. you know that maybe hadn't been running for you know a, a hundred years, literally, and and to make it come alive again. There, I, I don't think there's any greater satisfaction than that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's what you know an EMT gets when they shock somebody and, yeah. and they, they see that you know that uh, rhythm on the yeah. scope again. Uh, you know, it's a it's a fabulous thing. Um, can you talk to us about your, you know, traditional apprenticeship and formal training versus formal training? Well, you know, they're completely different. And okay. you've uh, had both, obviously. Yeah, and and my dad. I mean, I learned all nature of uh, purchasing inventory, inventory control, salesmanship, uh, alongside of all the crafts as well. You know, it was, right. it, it was learning. Uh, I'm, I'm sure my dad felt that I would eventually take over the business, take over yeah. the business right. and I, I would need all of that uh, uh, information. Uh, my dad was a, uh, an accounting student in college uh, wow. and, and he graduated with a degree in accounting wow. and, and he never worked as an accountant, but of accounting course, watchmaker. of course, uh, having that accountant background you. <laughs> was very important to yes. you know running your own business. So, right, you know, it, it all came in very handy. Uh -huh. But uh, uh, you know, and and my dad and I, just to give you uh, what our typical day might be, is we'd get up at six, go eat breakfast at seven, seven. get to the store around eight, okay, work until. Five, go home and eat dinner, and come back around eight and work until eleven. So you know it was wow. the, the, a lot of the uh, you know early mornings and late nights gave me an opportunity to have my dad teach me to show me you know we weren't interrupted by uh, you know, people coming into the store at those hours and so forth and. You know, and, and until I became really proficient and uh -huh. able to really, you know, be productive in terms of 
helping the store. Right. You know, it, my, my job was you know, to do a lot of those little incidental things that you have to do in a jewelry store and to do the little projects that my dad gave me for learning. And, uh, you know, and, and that's not a bad way to learn, and especially if it's your dad. He has a very uh, uh, great motivation to help you learn and, and, and teach you. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, you learned a lot of the fundamentals too about how to run a business. Yeah. Because we talked about some businesses earlier that were mismanaged. Like there's a great concept, right? There are people who really appreciate it, but the back house just get, get, keep things it's together. It's also right. a relationship though. It's, it sounds like you had a wonderful relationship with your dad. We did. It, you know, I always, always loved it. So after that six-year apprenticeship awesome. with your father, uh, and then going to Low Step, did you think that was beneficial going in with that uh, background already in, in, in watchmaking, or do you think that you had to rethink and retrain yourself yeah. to adapt to the, the rules of the school? Well, you know, that's it, see, that Low Step has evolved hugely, right? And you know, today we have these you know two thousand hour programs and so forth. <coughs> Excuse me that's designed to take a person who knows absolutely nothing, Correct. really, and to train them to be a watchmaker. Okay, well, Wellstep, at the time I went to Wellstep, you kind of had to be a watchmaker before, oh, you know, because they, they, they wanted you, they wanted to know that you were going to be able to follow the curriculum and, uh, and, and because at the time it was only a half year course okay. and uh, there wasn't a lot of time to waste right. and so they wanted people who were already invested in the industry, mm -hmm. who really wanted to be watchmakers, who were there you know, to take advantage of this and it was an incredible opportunity. I mean, I didn't have to pay anything at the school. Wow. I just had to pay for my room and board and uh, uh, you know, that's an incredible opportunity for any young person. Yeah, well, you said you got a scholarship to go there. I was wondering exactly how that worked. Yeah, but that's so that exactly was it. how it worked. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great opportunity. That is a great opportunity. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, it was, and it was a lot of fun, too. And, and, it, and it was a very pivotal, pivotal time in the watch industry. This was in 1984. And... And, you know, and, and somebody may be wondering, you know, why did you leave your dad's business? And honestly, it was the most, I was an idiot to leave my dad's business. I, I would be retired by now if I had stayed with But I just really wanted to be a watchmaker. Yeah. And, and my dad, number one, he, he thought I was, he thought I was a little bit stupid, I think for wanting to be a watchmaker, or, or disillusioned maybe, is what it was. Uh, because my dad looked at everything that was going on in the watch history that time and thought, oh no, Richard is going to be poor the rest of his life. <laughs> it's not a good time to be in the well, watch industry. I, want to, I almost want to say that was, that was part of your journey. Well, I mean. yeah, you know, I mean, today, I mean, we have, people talking about you know following your passion and right. doing what you really love and, uh -huh. and I feel like I was a little bit ahead of the curve on that there you because go. that's why I eventually ended up leaving my dad's stores because I you know I got the opportunity to buy the store with my sister and that that uh, that, that was a good out for me right but it, it had a little bit of a bad 
influence on my dad's and uh, my relationship. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you just really have to do what's going to make you happy. And, and I, I, I could have stayed there and worked for my dad, and I, I would have always wondered, you know, what if I had just been a watchmaker and, right. and really, uh, you know, did something you know, had the opportunity to really focus on what was my real, you know, joy and passion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the years are wonderful for second-guessing yourself, but I've never felt like I made a wrong decision. Well, you talked about, you know, happiness. You talked about, you know, passion. You even mentioned fun. And um, just when we were at the Piaget event and we were having a conversation, you're talking over a 50-year span now, and you're still having fun. Oh, yeah. And that's incredible. A lot of people can't say the same. Every day is an adventure. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I know a ton of people who are in a career or a field that they may have went to school for, or they may have been pushed towards, or they even fell into, and the joy isn't there. Every day going to work is a, a struggle. Getting out of bed, they have to try to motivate themselves to do that. Uh, and it's... A beautiful thing that you're still having fun, you're still passionate, uh, and again, everyone can't say that. And so that that makes me happy just being able to sit here with you and, and hear that story, hear that journey, and, and hear um, that sometimes when you strike out on an adventure for a passion, it can be beneficial and can be a lifelong joy. Well, it helps to be a little lucky. Too. I'm not going to discount that at all, certainly. But it, as long as you're willing to work hard, right, and and it is what you really love, I think you find a way. Is what it really Absolutely. is. Every time I I talk to Richard or read about Richard, there's there's so much passion. It feels like you're not you don't you don't get tired of doing what you do. Well, yeah. Everybody, you know, I, I never hate what I do, uh, and we all have. And you don't go, oh no, days. watch us again. Yeah, no, that that's never the issue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, occasionally, occasionally, I have a project that that uh, uh, is a little bit uh, trying. Okay. But uh, but you know that's part of the fun too. I, you have uh, people. People have said to me over the years, "Oh, you know, you have to have so much patience to be a watchmaker." Right. And, and I usually correct them and say, "No, I think the most the most important thing is is tenacity. Mm. You can't be willing. You, you can't give up easily. Yeah. Is what it amounts to because you have to uh, see it to there. Well, and, and, and some projects are so interesting." Because it's not just, if all we ever had to do was deal with you know, routine wear and tear, right. Right. life would be really boring. <laughs> but uh, you know, when somebody else gets involved and something happens and somebody changes the wrong part or does something that makes no sense because they didn't know what they were doing, right. and then you, you have to kind of you have to go back and be a forensic horologist to figure <laughs> You're doing out reverse engineering, right? Yeah, you have you have to figure out. You know, really, uh, there have been a, a, a few projects over the years where I actually had to make a list of everything 
that was wrong? What what has happened here? What's the watch doing now? What you, you need to you need to literally see it on paper sometimes so that you can you know a, a solution will become more apparent. And sometimes something doesn't make sense, and then you have to remember, oh well, what if somebody else did this or did that? And there's your answer. You know, you you have to. Especially if you work on old watches, vintage watches are really fascinating because a lot of, and sometimes it's because it was a bad watchmaker. Sometimes it was a watchmaker who didn't act, have access to the right parts or the right tools or something like that. They were the middle in the middle of Timbuktu, and you know they did the best they could. Uh, and I've seen some very interesting pieces of ingenuity right. over the years, uh, but. Every day can be very interesting because of these little things that crop into your... There's always something, you know, things, things go along okay and, and it seems like it's getting a little boring, but something always pops up that, you know, is, is the right kind of a headache that, that kind of jars you and shakes you up and, and you know, it helps you remember uh, why it's so fascinating to repair watches sometimes. And is there any telltale sign, like, from the moment you get a piece, like, flip the back case and you can tell there's already some you know oh screw ups happening like sure, I mean, scratches I mean, on the back case or yeah damage to you know the overall obnoxious. the overall uh, condition of the watch can right. be a uh, window into the uh, soul of who was working on Does it. Does that frustrate you or do you just go, huh, I just gonna have to make it right and fix it or do you go, they shouldn't be doing watches? You know, today, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the word tool watch. I, we discussed that a couple <laughs> nights ago. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's not my favorite thing, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, people, people had to have a watch. And, and when, when people couldn't just take their watch and get a battery put in it, right. you know, they had to take it to a watchmaker and the watchmaker had to service the watch. Right. Well, you know, if it was a AS976 or an AS1012 and there were jillions of them, uh, you know, for the ladies' watches. Mm -hmm. And they were just, they were just watches and, and the guy had to fix them Right. And just get the, a hammer. The, just the, the faster he fixed them, the more money he made. Right. And so they, they didn't take the time. Everything was not so precious as we look at it today. And they, you know, just did what they had to do. Sometimes you can have a piece that looks like it's been torn apart that's actually in pretty good running condition. You know, they just weren't careful. They didn't, you know, but, but, but they knew enough not to destroy the hairspring. They didn't damage the uh, settings of the pallet stones. They didn't wreck uh, 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 wheels. Uh, and they still did a competent job. It wasn't I, beautiful. I, I, but I, it you was mean effective. as far as function, fun it's there, but yeah. aesthetically it looks like crap already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, and they weren't working on, you know, expensive luxury products all day long. It was just something that they had to do to get it fixed because the, the client needed their watch back right. so that they could tell time because they needed a timekeeper, you know, for work or their job right. or whatever. And so, you know, watchmaking uh, or specifically watch repairing is very, very, very different today 
compared to what it was you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Okay. No, it's a completely different In, in what world. sense? Well, because that same AS976 is out of grandmother's watch now right. that was very precious to her and she loved that watch. Right. And now we want this watch taken care of and restored. Okay, well, the rules change a little bit there. Okay, how so? Well, because, number one, there aren't as many watchmakers out there who can understand or appreciate the wear that occurs in these watches and how to correct that. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times people don't want, I mean, I have a zillion of these watches at home, uh, but if I had my own business today, uh, that client doesn't want you to just put another movement in it. They want grandmother's movement right. in it. Mm -hmm. and, 100%. And so, you know, you, you have to explain to the client that, you know, this is what the condition is now and we need to do this, 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 and this. Right. We need to try and correct some of this damage here. Right. Uh, you know, replace necessary parts as available and, and uh, restore or remanufacture things as necessary. And we wouldn't have done those things when I first went to work for my dad. You know, it would have been, oh, you know, we can, let's, let's uh, substitute another movement here for you. It's the exact same movement. Your dial fits, your hands fit, everything's the same, and you're back in better condition than so, you were before. So there's a different appreciation, or a new appreciation new for those appreciation, things. appreciation, yeah. And, and trying to preserve some of that heritage of right. the piece. So does the client come in there, or would they come in there, thinking, I want this restored as far as the movement? Because a lot of people are just looking superficially at the watch, the, the case, the dial. Aesthetically uh, outside. Aesthetically, yeah. right. So do they gain that understanding by explaining what it's going to take to bring that watch back to uh, you know, peak operating condition? Well, it, it can be that way, or it can be, you know, because a lot of times, Somebody has gone to a, you know, a watch repair place, right. and they open the watch and they look at it and go, "I can't do this. You have to take this to somebody else." And then they take it to somebody else, and they go, uh, "This, I don't want to do this. This, this isn't my kind of work. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to go see so and so. They can help you. They specialize in doing these old watches, and so that's that's a lot of how." people learn and they also they can look things up online right there you know how many zillion of YouTube videos and, and somebody's explaining oh well this was a problem you have to fix this you have to fix that and but <laughs> so are they coming in with their own diagnosis of, of the watch well, as well because they've looked up things online well, and on well, YouTube. You know, <laughs> sometimes it would be a case of, you know, they already know that it's in pretty bad shape when they get to see you and they finally take it to somebody who's competent yeah. uh, to do it, uh, which, which is helpful. But, you know, for a watchmaker, you just have to explain to people exactly what the condition is and, and show them, you know, properly properly estimate your work and, and give them an idea of, of what needs to be done, why it needs to be done, and what it's going to cost. Now, then the client has to make a decision about that. But do you find that if they've gone to someone who's turned them away, and then they've gone to the second person who's turned them away, and the third person who's turned them away, and then 
get to you, they're going to be a more educated consumer and know the value in your work and what you bring in versus someone just brings it to you, you quote it and they're going, whoa, why? Because they don't understand. They haven't gone through those steps. It, it, exactly. And that's uh, people want to know. It, it, it's part of the journey of, of you know, restoring something that's a priceless family heirloom. Correct. And uh, you know, and I don't do, you know, I don't do this work for other people anymore. You know, I, I, I work for someone else, and I, you know, the only projects I do on my own are things that I, you know, own, and that I want to see finally back in running order. Uh-huh. Uh, and I. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't miss doing vintage watches for people because there's always a time element, and you know, as far as like return. Yes, exactly. Huh. And and I, you know, it's one thing when you're working on something that's new and you can get all the parts and and you have a better idea yeah. of how long it's going to take yeah. you. But on vintage stuff. You know, there's, there, there are not STOs for, uh, for vintage watches. They take however long they're going to take. And What's STO? I'm sorry. Standard time of operation. Standard time. I learned something new today. And so you, you really, I like being able to, be, then it becomes something I enjoy. Something right, right. that's, you know, I, I don't look at my no application pressure. as being a hobby, but I enjoy doing it for myself and working on something that's interesting to me, that, right. that has some kind of personal meaning, and that's you know, something that's relaxing to me that, that I enjoy doing. Right, so we discussed some of, the, um, some of the issues with restoring vintage watches because of, you know, the parts availability and so forth. What are some of the challenges with uh, newer watches? When I was in Stockton, I had this wonderful client, and this is actually something that I did for a client, but he was wonderful, and he, whatever he brought me, he just let me take however long I needed to take. The best kind of client. And, yeah. and I, uh, yeah. uh, it was a, uh, it was an independent jump seconds chronograph minute repeater. Wow! <laughs> Holy moly! And and it, it it had been it had been uh, uh, recased, you know, probably in some beautiful gold case originally, and and uh, somebody had put it in an old nickel pocket watch case. Uh-huh. And when, when he brought it to me, he didn't even realize. That it was, it, he liked it because it was the, the center seconds hand was was jumping, okay. second at a time, literally jumping. And he didn't even realize that it was a chronograph. And the people who had recased it, they didn't care that it was a chronograph. <laughs> they were more interested in, in 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 that it was a minute repeater. Right. And and I and, and I and I said I, his name was Bob. I said Bob. You know, this is a chronograph, yeah, too. Yeah, right. He said, really? What do you mean? I said, well, because it has a, it has a stop-start function. Yeah, right. You can stop and start that uh, uh, jumping jump, yeah. wow. seconds hand. Right. 
in the pillow. Uh, he said, really? I said, yeah. But it's going to be a little bit of a problem. There was the, uh, because it was a minute repeater, it had a very, 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 very long axle for the minute wheel. Okay. And it had a six leaf pinion, which is a nightmare uh, <laughs> to find a six leaf pinion. Uh, David Walter, the, you know, the fabulous watchmaker up in Santa Barbara, I saw him at a watch and clock collectors yeah. uh, convention one time and I uh -huh. said, you know, David, can you look at this for me? What would you do? Yeah. And, and even David looked at it and he said, oh, he said, that's a, that's a real problem. Uh, he said, you know, have you, have you looked in your, he said, have you looked in your, your box of old parts to see if maybe you can find a pinion for it? Yeah. Oh, okay. And I said, no, I, I never would have thought of that. He said, well, you know, because I, I would have been happy to pay David, you know, whatever. This is <laughs> just yeah. like, yeah. This, this, this is maybe, you know, I'm thinking, maybe this is a little bit above my pay grade here. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but because David was so fabulous, uh -huh. And, and, you know, he made, he made me feel confident that I could do this. Right. That, that's a great friend. That is a good friend. And uh, uh, so I went home and uh, looked through every single pinion that I had, in every watch wheel that I had, in any box that I had, and uh, there wasn't one. <laughs> Wait, I thought there was going to be a happy end to this story. There, there, <laughs> that's so. what I was thinking. Like he's just going to reach for a shoebox. No, no, yeah. And there it is, but, sitting. But, but wait, there's more. <laughs> oh, there's more. And while I was at Wellstep, our, right. uh, uh, our, our instructor, Tony Simona, uh, he was always willing and dealing with a lot of uh, you know, People who went to garage sales in Switzerland, they found all this junk. Uh -huh. uh, they knew he liked old watch parts, right. and old uh, watch tools, and old watches, and they'd bring stuff. We'd, we'd be working, we'd be working on our our, our uh, projects in school, and, and these guys would come in carrying all these big cardboard boxes of stuff that they'd found <laughs> over the weekend and they take it into Tony's office and they want him to show want to show it to him and, and, and yeah. have him make him make him an offer. Right. So you know we'd get a chance to look over this stuff and then we'd buy some of this stuff too. Wow. And uh, one of the things that I bought was these little boxes. Uh, they're like assemblers boxes that have all the parts for a particular caliber. Okay. Well, I bought these two boxes of this stuff, and mostly they were for one caliber, uh, which I never knew what caliber it was, and I never needed a part out of either of these two boxes that I bought. There's nothing in there that I ever needed. <laughs> and, but there was some miscellaneous that was thrown in there. Uh, and you know, sometimes if I need just some you know, steel stock or something like that, I could get something out there and use it. One night, I was looking through for something else. Okay. Yeah. And I found a blank six leaf pinion that was long enough for me to use for that watch. And I used to think to myself about these two boxes 
damn, that Tony really stuck it to me. Right. I can't even remember how much he charged me. <laughs> <laughs> I've never gotten anything out of these. <laughs> <laughs> and now I look at this one six-leaf pinion and I go, Oh, you I know, Richard, you maybe, you. maybe this wasn't such a bad deal after all. So it was just, it was kind of, and, and it was very rough. It was just something, it, it, it was something that was rough manufacture. Right. Uh -huh. I had to, um, I had to turn it down on the lathe, cut the pivots. Modify. I had to, uh, 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 I, I had to turn the diameter of the pinion down and then reshape all of the leaves right. and polish and you know cut the shoulder to fit the minute wheel on it and it worked absolutely perfectly oh that's beautiful so there there is a silver lining at the end of that story <laughs> i got worried there in the middle for and, a bit so, and so you know i i, I look at that uh, what if you never found it that was the one shot oh you never know i might have gone down and you know Natalie's at Hovick's one day oh. and be looking through one of her boxes and go, oh, Natalie, I need this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, you just, that's where tenacity comes in. You have to just keep looking. And and so, How long know, was the Washington Limbo looking for this piece? Oh, we're talking like, you know. Three, five years? No, well, I think it was like more like six or seven. Seven years. Wow. Oh, my. And, wow. uh, you know, to finally find that. And that, and that was the, you know, that wow. was the, you know the the linchpin that everything hung on. Uh, if I could, you know, finish that, then you know, the the repeater was very high grade piece, very nice quality. Uh, even David thought so, and it came out beautifully. It worked. The repeater was excellent. Wow. Uh, had great tone, wow. and I was able to rework the case. I had to make a I had to make a new stem and crown for it. There, there was no place for pushers because in that, in that case, was there? Yeah, no, you had to make it in, you had to build it into you, the, you, uh, you like a stopwatch type. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, and then you had a, it was in the crown the, 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 uh, for the stop start. Okay. So I had to make, you know, and I, I had to, you know, you have to make another sleeve so that the uh, crown can actuate uh, the stop and start. And it... You know, it was it was a fun it was a fun project, and that, that's the kind of stuff. You know, we, we we got on this whole thing because, you know, what I find interesting. Right. You know, something like that. You know, that's a. You know, and sometimes these things take forever. You know, and, and you get tired if you're doing it for yourself and you don't have to worry about uh, someone breathing down your, right. uh, your back. Neck. That's yeah. what, that's why I never like to do work for any you know vintage watch dealer because they always have a buyer for it and they want it done immediately and it's like I'm oh, sorry I'm all done with that. We asked you to bring a couple watches that you love. You brought four. Well you want to talk about it? One one is one is not a watch technically. Uh, it's a timekeeping device. It is Does that work? It is a timekeeping okeay, device. Okay, a timekeeping device. No, I was bring, going to bring some other uh, but I decided to bring the, the three that have personal meaning okay. to me. And I'll start with my uh, Ball Train Master wristwatch. This is one of the original Balls. This is... What uh, era is that? This is from... This would be from 1979. Or actually probably more like 80. Uh, and, and the way this watch came to be, even, 
I, there, there were, at the ball company, I, I won't go into the whole history, the whole history of the uh, ball company and where the ball railroad pocket watches came from and everything. Right. But anyway, there, after a certain time, the ball company, which was a jewelry wholesaler, really, right. watch material dealer from way back, they had other offices in other cities. And the last city they had an office in was Los Angeles. And I would see the guys from the ball company at the fall uh, Pacific Jewelry Show mm -hmm. at the Century Plaza Hotel mm -hmm. that we went to every year. And I would stop by their booth and I was the irritating kid who would stop by <laughs> and say, hey, when are you gonna make some more train masters? Right. Okay. Uh, you know, we don't have any, we haven't made them for a long time, and we don't have the parts, and, well, why don't you look around a little bit? You know, maybe you can find some parts. You, there, there would be, a, you know, some people who would really desire to have these watches. Yeah. I'd really love to have one of these watches. Please make one of these watches. Right. And so year after year after year after year. And then one day... The guy from the ball company called me on the phone and he said, well, we finally checked with Switzerland and they had enough parts and cases and dials and hands to make five last ball train master wow. wristwatches. And I bought one, uh -huh. or actually, my grandmother bought it for me for my 21st birthday, and and my dad bought one. So there's two. Out of five, you got two. Out of five, we got two. Wow. And I, I let I let somebody have the one oh, years ago. You know, uh -huh. One of those things where somebody offers you way too much money for right. something. Right. Uh, and and mine. I can honestly say is one of the last five ever produced by the ball company. The one we're looking at right now. The one you're the looking at dial. right now. That is an incredible and it's got story. The, and this, this, has the, uh, this has the Canadian dial, uh -huh. what they call the Canadian dial, that has the red 24-hour uh, uh, markings right. on it. This is one of five, Chase. Oh, I know. I've had the pleasure of don't seeing this watch. Don't tell me you have watch. the other one, too. No, no, I don't, okay. have, I, don't, I don't have one of the other ones, but I've had the pleasure of meeting this watch He's before. like, I know. I have two of those. <laughs> the other three. Yeah. yeah. The next one yeah. is, uh, it, it's an IWC. I think this is 32 millimeters. Uh, it has a, it's a manual wind. Uh, Teardrop lug, stainless steel case. Uh-huh. The uh, I will I will always have this watch because my wife has told me that I'm forbidden from selling it. Oh. Because uh, when we first met in Hawaii, I just bought this watch. I just finished servicing it up and restoring it. I bought it at a NAWCC convention. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I won't go into the whole story about how I, the first time my wife and I met uh, uh, in person, we were in Hawaii. Uh-huh. And a friend of mine that I used to work with at Cartier, who was from Hawaii, convinced me that uh, uh, 
something really great to do would be to take my uh, 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 new girlfriend at the time, uh, soon to be fiance, uh, on a uh, kayaking trip. So we were out in the ocean. I, I wasn't wearing this watch. I had actually put it in a uh, plastic bag. At least I was smart enough to do that. <laughs> and um, we were not paying very good attention during orientation of renting the kayak. <laughs> Sounds like me. And, and they, <laughs> they, they had mentioned that you needed to stay on a certain uh, side of the reef. Right. And uh, uh -oh. we had kind of completely missed that part. Right. <laughs> and we ended up on the ocean side of uh -oh. the reef <laughs> and got trapped in the waves, knocked out of the uh, kayak. Uh, kayak. The kayak, yeah. And it, it was kind of a, a interesting... Uh, it's one thing to get in a kayak when you're standing on the beach. Yeah. It's something yeah. else yeah, entirely yeah. to get... Into one where you're out in the water. Open the water. Yeah. And, you know, the waves... So you tipped over? Yeah. Oh, yes. I wanted to say, over. oh, no, my watch! <laughs> no, no it, it, it was actually a little bit more serious than the watch. Okay. It was kind of like, you know, are we... And there was nobody... I mean, we were so... We were way too far out. We had right. gotten into a really bad position. Uh-huh. And it was kind of a little bit more, uh, oh, are we going to drown? <laughs> and wow. uh, so to make a long story short, uh -huh. we uh, uh, ended up getting back in the kayak. Uh, then kind of unexpectedly, we ran into the reef. Uh, my, my wife stayed in the kayak. I bounced out. Uh, by the time I had gotten past the reef, I was kind of, my legs were shredded up pretty well. Uh -huh. And when we got back to where we were staying, that's when I turned into a, you know, a complete maniac. And, and she said, oh, you know, let me, let me help you with your, with your, you know, getting your legs bandaged up. And I said, no, no, I'm sorry. I have something much more important to do. I, I brought, I mean, watchmaker goes on vacation. They yeah. take their screwdrivers and their uh, you know, case opening knife and their tweezers. Right. And I said, I have to open my watch up. If I don't, it's going to be toast by tomorrow. <laughs> it's all no, bleeding all over the place. Yeah. i got to open my watch. I, Salt I, water, I, not I, good. I was literally <laughs> bleeding at that point. Yeah. But anyway, I was. there's a little bit of damage. Yeah. If you look at the watch, you'll notice there's a little bit of damage on uh, uh, one side of the dial. I think it's around 2 o'clock or something like that. There's a tiny little bit of water damage that is from that. There's corrosion, uh, right? Yeah. Oh my. So anyway, uh, I was able to get it out of the case and uh, get it dried out. She was your fiance at the time. Girlfriend at the Girlfriend. Was she looking at you like this guy's crazy? Oh, I, I was. I was beginning to wonder about that. She must think I'm losing my mind or something. Unfortunately, uh, I had just serviced it, and it had you know. Nice fresh oil, everything uh -huh. was in good shape, and uh, so it, it, it survived. It really and we survived, that was really important. A glimpse into your priorities. There it is. <laughs> there it is. So when, when she actually agreed to marry you, she already knew what she was getting herself into. It's sort of, yeah. Okay, well the next one, fast forward uh, 15 years, and I was turning 60, and my wife said, what do you want to do for your 60th birthday? She's, she's from Japan. 
Uh-huh. And I said, well, I, I, I want to go, I want to go to Japan. I want to go to Hokkaido. Okay. And I want to buy a Grand Seiko in Ginza. How long ago was this, just for time reference? It, this was uh, in uh, 2018. Okay, okay. And uh, so we planned this trip, and, 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 and this kind of has to do with the, the next uh, timekeeping device. Uh-huh. I, I, I also really wanted to go to the uh, Seiko Museum in Tokyo. Ah, yes, yes. And I... Uh, uh, My wife's kind of funny. It, it, a lot of times she feels like I force her to do too many things in Japanese for me because I, I, I'm very bad. I've not learned to speak enough Jap- Japanese language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted her to call the museum in Tokyo and make uh, the reservation. Uh-huh. And she said, no, we're not doing it. They'll have somebody there who speaks English. You can call them yourself. <laughs> fair so, enough. Fair so, enough. Yeah, it was fair enough. Uh-huh. I called them on the phone. And, of course, they answered in Japanese. And then I realized I was speaking to someone who was speaking my language as well. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm coming to Japan. I'd really like to have a museum. And I'd like to have the, uh, uh, an English... Uh, I'd like to have the, the tour through the museum in English. English guide. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, the English guide. And so I, I told the person on the phone what days I could come, and they said, oh, no, sorry, this day we can't do it, this day we can't do it, this day there's a school group coming through, and, and you can't do it that day either. Right. And, you know, and I never liked being that person but, you know, it was my 60th birthday, and I really wanted to, you know, something that I'd always kind of wanted to do. Yeah. And so I, I, I said to the person on the phone, you know, I'm, I'm actually a professional watchmaker, and I'm, I'm very good friends with the uh, director of your Grand Seiko boutique in Beverly Hills. And at that point, the woman on the other end goes, Quite abruptly, she says, I have to talk to my boss. <laughs> and, and she didn't, she didn't say, may I put you on hold? Yeah, yeah. She just put me on hold. Right. And so, like, uh, you know, it's like 15, 20 minutes later, yeah. uh, she comes on the phone. You know, and of course, I'd given her my name. Correct. And, and, and uh, uh, Shermeen Greenman was the uh, director of the uh, Grand Seiko Petit on Rodale Drive at right. the time. And uh, when, when they came back on the phone, they said, oh, you know, we'll be happy to see you. Would this day be OK for you? I said, oh, yes, that would be Love perfect. It's it one of the days. Yeah. It was one of the days. Yeah. And, 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 it's, and as soon as I got off the phone, my wife is sitting on the sofa, and she's you know, kind of you know, laughing uh-huh. you know, as this is occurring. Right. And uh, I looked at my wife, and I said, oh, you know what? I should probably call Shermeen and let her know that that I used her name at the museum, and and so I, I, I decided to be you know 
I, I didn't want to, I decided I wouldn't call her, so I texted yeah. her and I yeah. said, you know, Shermina, I just want to let you know that I, I just used your name yeah. to get an appointment at the Seiko Museum right. in Tokyo. Right. And immediately, Shermina texted me back, I know. <laughs> they, 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 they had called. They invented you. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, yeah. They called New York, right? From Tokyo, right? And, and New California. York, New York called. Uh, 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 New York no, called uh, Shermine, yeah, right. spoke to her, made sure that they knew, that she knew Richard Rogers, that I was legit, right, and said that I was okay. Within, within 20 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty funny. But, uh, uh, you know, getting to go to the Ginza Boutique, and, yeah. and, and Shermine had been so wonderful because she said, <laughs> You know, and, and I said, you know, I'd really rather buy a watch from you. And she said, no, 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 Richard, check and see if they have uh, any type of limited collection models at that time. And you should see if one of those, you know, so if you like it. Huh? And so I found this watch. It is a limited collection. It's number 25 of 50. It has a very unusual rare green dial with the Arabic numerals at 12 and 6. And... Uh, and I, I really wanted a spring drive. I'm a big uh, fan of the spring drive uh -huh. concept. And uh, it, uh, it, it, you know, at first I thought, oh, you know, I'll just wear this for special occasions. And it's like, you know, a week of that. And I thought, no, I'm wearing this thing every day. <laughs> so it, it's kind of really my new uh, daily driver. But uh, will bring us up to the, the fourth piece I brought, which was... Uh, it's a replica of the Seiko Olympic timing clocks for the 1964 the yellow Olympics. Yeah. And uh, I had, you know, it's amazing how you acquire, you know, uh, friends and, and, and people in this business. And, and the, the, the director of the museum who actually gave me the tour of... Uh, uh, you know, what is an extraordinary collection of Seiko watches, obviously, but other uh, rare things from the world of horology. Uh, Larry Kobari was extraordinary, and his English was quite exceptional because he used to be in the United States, and he used to work with the people uh, who had the Seiko service platform in El Segundo, California. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so it didn't take Larry and I very long to uh, realize that we had a lot of friends in common. Right. We knew a lot of the, you know, exactly the same people. And, and yeah, it, it, it was an incredibly small people, or a small world. And, uh, uh, you know, he was just absolutely extraordinary. And, and of all the things, you know, that, uh, you know, horologically speaking, that I had the opportunity to enjoy while I was in Japan for that birthday trip, getting to meet him and form a relationship with him. Uh, and this clock, it always reminds me of that because one of the, it, 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 I, I had not understood a lot about the, you know, I was very familiar with the Swiss timing, you know, by Omega and Longine for you know, sports events and, and historical events and things of that nature. But I'd never realized exactly the contribution that Seiko made in terms of 
you know, the uh, early, kind of the first age past using mechanical stopwatches. So that it truly was accurate precision timekeeping for events like the Olympics. So I can't have this. They they are available at the museum. (laughs) We want want the Richard Rogers one. But my wife wife looked at me and she said, why are you buying that clock? (laughs) And I said, this is my memento of the Seiko Museum. She's like, but you have a watch. (laughs) Well, and and it's really, I, I don't know if you noticed how it works. You can see the time, Correct. but if you press the button on top, it illuminates it. Yeah. And it's perfect, you know, like bedside clock Absolutely. kind of thing. So do you have that next to your bed? Yeah. You do? And, and I only use it, I only use the alarm when I think that there is some chance that I might not wake up because this thing will wake the dead. <laughs> <laughs> it is incredibly loud. So we're going to propose uh, three scenarios. And that is going to consist of three watches or timepieces in this uh, particular junction. So, would you like to use these three here, or would you also like to include swap one of these out? Well, what's what's the criteria for the selection process? You just have to pick three. Oh, (laughs) that that is the only criteria at this point. Yep, at this point, right now. I know where this is going. I don't, I'll just be clear. I don't like this game. This is that. <laughs> no, Chase, you're, part, you're, in you're, this. you're in this. You're here. You have your own mic. Yeah, you took the handshake. Yeah. Yes. It's kind of like choosing which child you have to sacrifice. There you go. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I, okay, sacrifice I, your first I child. Okay, then in that case, the Grand Seiko Spring Drive goes out and wow. the clock comes back. Can you tell us what was the thought process? Well, there's... There's a little bit more of a human connection between the ball and the connection with my wife or the IWC. And then the clock is kind of a little bit more of a connection with Larry Kobari. Oh. And, and that, so, that, so there's a little Dude. bit more of a human connection with the clock. Sentimental value. Yeah. Okay, so now we're down to three. We're bringing this clock back in there. Clock's back in. Grand Seiko's out. So out of these three, if you had one that you just had to experience, just have a a momentary tryst with it, right? One that you could just completely remove from your collection, having never had it, and one that is the forever from these three pieces. The lifer. The lifer, the the married. You can start whichever you want to. Get rid first or? So now, slay your other two kids. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is terrible. Wow, this is really nasty. He is looking at the digital clock. Oh, the arms are crossed. So we're whittling this down to what is the most individually significant piece. There it is. Well, <laughs> I think the the Seiko clock would go out Uh-oh. next. Okay. I'll take that. Okay. Okay. No and problem. so if that one's born, it's not the forever, not the forever right? then 
which category does that fall into? Something that you either had to experience or the one that you just discard, discarding? Never had it. Further explain, please. <laughs> All right, so. This isn't easy on me. I'm not going to make it easy on you either. <laughs> oh. That's fair game. That's mm-hmm. fair game. It's all fair. Yeah. And we're game for it. Yeah. So something that you had to have in your possession or your collection for a moment in time that you had to have an experience with versus one that you could just completely just discard. So we know that you... This would would be a... a, a, I could discard this. You can discard that. Okay, so we're going to discard the digital sacral clock. The digital sacral clock. So now you have the choice between... The ball. The ball being the forever piece or the IWC being the forever piece. But one of those you would have had to have an experience with, yeah. have, have a tryst with, have, have a moment in time yeah. with. And then get rid of it. And then it can yeah, pass through your collection. Then the IWC would go. The, the one, one where you almost died. That you almost died. That you were meeting your, at that time, girlfriend. The one that she told you that you could never sell. Yeah. That one is going to go. That one is going to go. <laughs> Talk to us what, what led you to that. Well. Actually, it's it's maybe a little bit easier decision huh. than you might imagine. Okay. Uh, the IWC I could probably replace. Okay. At some point. Yeah. Uh, Although if I wanted to, with you in that near death experience. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. See. But you said you, know, you wanted to make it a little harder on us. I'm going to make it a little harder on you. You know. Uh, Good man. The one that he defibrillated. Probably, <laughs> probably the, the best thing, uh, it, this is a little bit more of a philosophical thing. Let's go. We're going for it. Because, you know, we love these things and, and they do take on these very special meaning, extraordinary meanings to us. Yeah. You know? yes. uh, sometimes it's, it's just a watch, yeah, and we can just get rid of it. Yeah. and. and uh, uh, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's just stuff. Absolutely, you know, it doesn't. That all the time. It doesn't have. Uh, you know, it, it really. We, we give it the meaning. It doesn't. It doesn't really have that meaning. Right. It's just a. You, know, you can't really call a watch an inanimate object because it's always animated. But <laughs> uh, you know, this is true. Yes. It, it's, it's still. It's still. Yes. It's still just a. Uh, it's still just an object. It's just a, a possession that we can choose to have or not have. Uh, the the ball. There's the connection with my grandmother, who I was exceptionally close to. And one of the things that my wife and I had in common uh, was that we both had these fabulous relationships with our maternal grandmothers. Right. And uh, and I think you know for for both of us, it's something that shaped our lives. Right. And uh, you, you have no idea how, I, I, I was so shocked when they called me from Ball and told me that they had those watches that I had finally irritated them enough that they would go to the uh, length to, you know, 
put those five together. It's, together. it's almost like they produced these five watches, but they were specifically produced for you. For you, but they had to make a minimum of five at least. Well, they, they I, I think, what, what they told me is that they, they had, that was all they had, you know, that they could make right. out of what was left at that point right. were those five watches. And you, and had, you had pestered them for so long. That, that again, is an example of his tenacity. Tenacity, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, the and will. That, and and that, was, that was it, exactly. And, and, and this was, uh, you know, where the, uh, you know, the Grand Seiko, uh, the wristwatch, was, you know, for my, you know, my Milestone. gift yeah. for, you know, uh, turning 60, the ball was for my 21st birthday. And, and it just kind of ended up being coincidental in a way because that's when they got the watches done and uh, and and I think my grandmother had actually said you know can I pay for the watch right. for Richard's birthday and uh, uh, so the fact that it was a, a, a gift from my grandmother yeah. and that it was something you know, and the, and the ball watch company was always kind of very fascinating to me. Uh, you, you know, anybody who wants to look up, you know, the uh, original ball company that was established by Webb Seaball in Cleveland, mm -hmm. Ohio. Yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating history. He was a extraordinary man. He was a great marketer. He was smart. And he produced an extraordinary product, uh, but there's so much history and lore you know, behind what he accomplished, uh, and and that spoke to me as a very young man. And I, uh, my my dad carried these in in his jewelry store. Wow. The train masters, but you know they kind of you know fallen out of fashion, and and at the time that. You know, this was produced in like 1980 or 70. Yeah, well, yeah, because it was a bit after. Yeah. The you know people who worked on the railroad. They had Accutrons, right, right? Or they had you know something else that was a railroad model that was more accurate right. and more reliable, and you didn't have to have it serviced all the time and all that kind of stuff. So uh, this was kind of my early love of watches were American railroad watches. And you know, and this was at a time when, you know, the American watch industry was the leading watch industry in the world. Our our friends in Switzerland don't like us to bring that up, yeah. but uh, you know, it was uh, you know an, an incredible industry in the United States. And a lot of people don't realize there are like 160 some watch companies in the United States, yeah. uh, and you know, and of course the you know, what, what a railroad watch was an incredibly amazing thing. Right. And so that was my first love affair with watches, was with the ball, with the railroad pocket watches. And, you know, so I could never, I could never replace that watch. It would be an absolute impossibility. There's, there's um, with all three of the pieces that you chose to keep in, there was a human element, mm -hmm. and, and that's beautiful. I think that's what all uh, has brought all of us together. Yeah. Is that 
that human thing. So. Yeah. Initially, it's the hobby or the interest or the you know. Uh, what was the slogan? Commonality. Um, that we came, came for the watches and stayed for the people. Oh. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's I, the moniker you know, of the show. I've read that. There you go. And, and that's, you know, you couldn't be uh, more correct in, and that's one of the things that I've always loved about the jewelry and watch industry. I, I, the people in this industry, uh, you know, are, are extraordinary. And, 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 the, and the level of trust oh, and yeah. the, the friendship that exists yep. in, this world, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know where else you find that, where else you get that. It's really an amazing thing. That sentiment's been echoed by a lot of people. Many it's, times. Yes, it's very much built on that. And well, Chase is here. Oh. Well, <laughs> hello. Uh, well, I had to find somewhere where I can make a useful contribution right. or convince myself right. of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, be, be your own champion. Yeah, yeah. There we go. No, but what, what Richard is saying is very much correct. And growing up, at least in the periphery and somewhat, somewhat involved, at least being exposed to the the LA, LA area and uh -huh. the jewelry and watch industry, it is all based on your reputation and who knows you. Yeah. And um, I've, for example, I've con called up a company on the East Coast and. I've spoke to somebody who doesn't know me, and mm -hmm. he said, "Well, can you can you give me a reference?" And I'll say, "Well, yeah, of course." So and so, Don Don Goodman will vouch for me, and it'll be the type of thing. Oh, if, if he, you know, as well, if this person vouches for you, you you know, you basically have you know carte blanche, yeah. any, anything you want. Mm -hmm. We usually end the show with a top five question. It absolutely means nothing. It's just for fun. Uh, you have to answer it real quick. There's no right or wrong. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Let's go. Arabica or Robusta? Arabica. Coaxial or spring drive? Spring drive. The one he just let go a minute ago. What? The one that he just let go. Oh, yeah. Yo, he let go before it got started. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, favorite activity to clear your mind? Don't tell me building watches. I think it's happening right now. <laughs> <laughs> favorite activity? Exercise, reading, swimming, running, yeah. cooking, trying to open a swatch. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Puzzles. To clean. Drinking sure. wine. Yeah. Yoga. Yoga. Oh, yeah. Stre stretching, probably. Stretching. Next to your bench. <laughs> yeah, we go there. Anywhere. <laughs> okay, last one. Library or museum? They're kind of the same thing. A museum of books? Museum of watches? Oh. Museum of clocks? <laughs> Library of watch books? Library or museum? Yeah. You're still thinking. Hold on, love. No, yeah. Well, I'd have to say library because it would depend on the museum. Because oh, library, you can unlimited. Everything's there. Everything's so. in. Yeah. So, definitely. I love libraries. The library. Have you been downtown, down here? Oh, awesome. oh, amazing. Yeah, we love being in there. Richard, we have a sand timer in front of us, right? Yes. You, you see it's not working. Sand's not dropping. <laughs> Do you service sand timers by any chance? 
how you, you calibrate know, a sandpaper? You know, it, it, moisture it's, it's will cause now. plumping. <laughs> it's, it, it's like a lot of watches. It just works when it wants to. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's not dropping anything. In your professional opinion, would you say it's due for service? Moisture intrusion. <laughs> I don't think there's any servicing. There's no servicing. It's like a swatch. It's sealed. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a perfect analogy. Indeed. You can also email us at theoutoftimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Ono for our beat.